This is Nashville. I'm executive producer Andrea Tudhope sitting in for our host, Khalila Kalona. Comic books, graphic novels, newspaper cartoon strips, they're all beautiful ways to tell stories. Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode we first aired last year around Free Comic Book Day. It's a nationwide event and the biggest day of the year for comic book sellers. Middle Tennessee shops definitely got in on the action. Last year, to kick off this episode, WPLN digital editor Rachel Iacovoni visited one spot just after the rush. The sun's beginning to set on this Saturday night, and I'm just now pulling into a strip mall in Madison. Other shops in the plaza may have changed over the years, but this spot has been a staple for local comic book fans since the 80s. Hello, hello. Hi there. Danny Hayes works here. At this point in the day, he's got the spiel down. On Free Comic Book Day, we offer seven free comics off our middle tables here. They're the ones that are all labeled and covered, including little doodads and pickups. Danny's not kidding. There are stacks upon stacks of comics on the tables. I've already spotted the X-Men, Archie, Avatar The Last Airbender, Sonic the Hedgehog, and I'm pretty much still in the doorway. We were busy all day up until about 20 minutes ago. So today for the comic book industry, this is our Black Friday. That's Larry Miller, the owner of Comic City 2. Every time we do something like this, we always get new people that we start seeing every month or every couple of weeks. Uh, and a lot of people just haven't had a chance to get out since you know, the last couple of years. This annual event was rearranged or canceled due to the pandemic, so people are really excited to have it back. It's really more than just an event. Larry says customers are happy to have community back. The store doesn't just carry comics, though there are a lot of them. It's a 60-40 split with board games for groups, RPGs, Magic the Gathering, Warhammer, you name it. Larry bought the shop in 2016 from the last owner after working for him for years. And with it, he carried on its tried and true model. We really focus on our customer base and our community, and that's what keeps us in business. And that's one thing everybody's missed. Talking with Larry, you can tell he knows a lot, but that wasn't always the case. The bad experience I had as a kid, you know, in the comic book store was, oh, I want to read this. Where do I begin? They're like, oh, just over there somewhere, blah, blah, blah. We don't want to repeat that. That means fielding questions sometimes, like, hey, where can I find the Walking Dead comic the made-for-TV character first appears in? But Larry says he wouldn't change that. Here you get exposed to everything, so you're much more likely to pick up and see something physically and have it catch your eye and compel you to read it than, oh, I should read this because I read that. Whatever, you know. Uh, as much as you know, the apps would like to be able to tell you and suggest to you what the next thing is, somebody like me or anybody in a store that has a little bit of knowledge thereof can lead you a lot better. And the artificial intelligence hasn't gotten that good yet. One day, maybe it will, but because we're a community, you can't do that online. 
And you definitely can't go home without a free comic book day issue of Star Wars and Avengers and Legend of Korra and Steven Universe and Pokemon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That is a good haul right there. Steven Universe is my jam. One of the comics available for free was written and illustrated by my first guest. Well, just the first 20 pages, but it's definitely enough to draw you in. It won't always be like this. Author and illustrator Malika Garib joins me now in studio. Malika, welcome to This Is Nashville. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So It Won't Always Be Like This is a part of Free Comic Book Day. What was it like for you to be there? I think it was just wild to see that my comic, an indie comic in the world of comics, was placed next to superhero comics with really, really recognizable names. These are brand names. I'm like, we're talking like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Captain Underpants, Buffy mm. the Vampire Slayer, and there was my comic. And what's it, what's amazing is that this comic um, is. Free Comic Book Day is global. Global. I had, um, you know, I saw something that in Seoul, South Korea, uh, Free Comic Book Day comics were there, including my book. And um, I just had so much fun scrolling through social media afterwards and seeing people include my book as part of their hauls um, right alongside like X-Men. I just, um, it was one of the few titles that were truly indie. So I was just over the moon. Tell me a little bit more about your new book. Yeah, so this book is um, about every every summer I used to visit my uh, dad in the Middle East. My dad lives in Egypt, uh, growing up from age 9 to 25. And I used to, um, one year when I arrived, my, my dad told me that he had gotten remarried. And so the book is essentially about trying to fit in with a blended family, but just it just so happens to take place in, an, in a Muslim Egyptian home, which I think that there's not that much literature about um, in general in the U.S. and a lot of misunderstanding about Egyptian, Arab, Middle, uh, Muslim, Middle Eastern cultures. And um, I think that this provides... We're, I'm literally taking you inside the home of our family and sort of talking about what it was like to fit in for me, not in terms of my identity, but in terms of, of being um, just a part of this new family. Hmm. Why did you decide to focus on this particular part of your childhood? Yeah, because um, so I previously wrote a, a book called it, um, uh, I Was There American Dream, which focused about uh, my culture and identity and my relationship to being Filipino, Egyptian, American and the daughter of immigrants. And I really wanted to focus on this part of my life because I wanted to convey something very universal, which was how do we how what is it like to to, to make relationships with people without culture, without knowledge of religion, without knowledge of social norms and expectations, without knowledge of language. It is possible, as, I've, as I discover and learn in my book, to forge these very powerful relationships without anything at all. And so I think it conveys a probably very much needed message about, um, about you know, people, immigrants nowadays trying to get along with each other. You mentioned your first book, I Was There, American Dream. I want to get back to that really quickly. How Can you tell me, how did you come to put that together? Yeah, so um, I actually was inspired to draw these comics um, for my Instagram after I, um, after in 2016, uh, 
around the time of the Trump election because I was hearing a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric in the media and in the zeitgeist. For example, um, immigrants don't belong here. Why are Muslims terrorists? Which was something that we had heard, what I had heard um, when I was growing up after 9-11. And, you know, they're taking our jobs, uh, bad hombres, you know, you remember that rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And I just, I felt like that was the first time in my life, in my adulthood, but I was like, wait a second, are, I thought we were cool, America. I guess not. Um, so I started drawing these comics about um, my dad. You know, this is the Muslim Egyptian Arab man who America fears. He loves Tom Hanks. He hmm. loves eating fried chicken and he loves gardening. And I tried to like push back on these these narratives that I, we were seeing. And pretty soon I had 40 comics and then like nearly 100. And then somebody reached out for a book deal. Have you always been drawing since like birth? No, not really. I um I was always a doodler. Okay. Um, okay. And I, I really wanted to go to art school because I felt like I was more of a creative type. But my parents wouldn't let me, typical immigrant parents. And um, I just was, I actually came up in the zine community in, in uh, my 20s, which was I was making these independent magazines. And I would include my doodles in them. Why? Because it was my zine. So I could do whatever I want with it. Um, and my comics I have like so much naivete in drawing and I don't like my style at all, but uh, that's literally just what comes out of my, my hands when I draw. But it wasn't until the book when I started um, actually like putting, learning how to use a computer to draw formal comics and that type of thing. How is writing for comics different than other forms of writing? Yeah. So I find write, drawing and writing comics a little bit by like poetry. So, um, you have these elements, you have very few elements that you can work with. You have the dialogue, you have the narration, and you have the image. And all three of them must communicate something together. And that's part of the challenge. And for me personally, I love to add as few words and images and dialogue as possible. I want there to be space for your imagination to interpret what you're looking at on the page. So for example, um, here's an example of something fun about drawing comics. You can draw a couple kissing, for example, and that's a beautiful image. But then the narration says, I hate this man. And then the dialogue says, like, like, I love you so much. So, you know, the, the, each, each of those things isolated say totally different things. But when you see it all together, you have a totally different message. Mm -hmm. So um, that's I feel like when I'm drawing comics, I'm kind of like, like, you know, doing like a Rubik's cube, like trying to figure out like the best combination of elements to get to like what I'm trying to say with few words as possible. Now, going from making zines to a graphic memoir is quite a jump. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. I was like freaking out when they told me that they wanted the book publisher told me that they wanted like a continuous storyline for 160 pages. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I do not know how to do that. I literally do not know how to do that. Um, I also am not even a cartoonist, so I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I just pretended like there was nine chapters. I just like worked backwards. I was like, what is the longest zine I've ever made? 20 pages. Okay, I'm going to cut the book into 20 pages each. And that was the chapters. Okay. And if you actually read them, they're all standalone. They're all standalone like comics. Like they don't, there's, I didn't know how to like craft like one continuous narrative. So I pretended like the book was nine zines. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned before about working with a computer, learning how to draw on a computer. So first question I'm going to ask, your preference, drawing by hand or drawing with a computer? Oh, my gosh. I used to hate. Okay. 
I like drawing with a computer now because you can, it makes so many shortcuts. You can enlarge things. You don't have to redraw. You can erase your mistakes, you know, control alt delete and erase it. Um, you can color things. You don't have to get messy. Um, but that was a really steep learning curve for me in my first book because, um, I didn't even know how to hold the pen. Drawing on a tablet is so different from drawing on a uh, piece of paper and drawing with a pencil um, because you just don't know, like the, the feel of the, the um, tablet underneath your pen is like, it's just a different experience. I was also using the type of tablet where I had to look at a screen while drawing. So it was so complicated. I ended up getting carpal tunnel syndrome. So wow. I, um, I don't recommend it. But I do recommend it. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> physical therapy. Yeah, exactly. I did do physical therapy. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. So, but it's almost like you're a superhero yourself. You know, by day, you're a science desk editor in PR. And on your off time, here you are creating these graphic memoirs. I want to know, have the two ever met somewhere? Yeah. After my book came out, my editor, um, my manager at NPR was like, hey, you should do comics for us. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, and my first major comic I did for NPR was this, um, this, it, the pandemic had just happened. Um, and the first comic I did was uh, a, a guide for kids and coronavirus. And I did it in conjunction with the education desk um, with a reporter named Corey Turner. And I did not, I could not have imagined how impactful that comic would be it was a comic and a zine. I made like a printable zine that people could, could do. And it basically had directions on how to protect kids and how to talk to kids about, about coronavirus. And it went completely viral, like millions and millions of page views. People were all around the world, like from India to Malaysia to, you know, the Middle East to, um, I think like Poland, uh, Korea, they all translated it into their native languages without NPR's permission. But NPR at that point was getting so many, um, like requests for translation that they were just like, just say yes to everything and just make sure they credit NPR. Okay. Um, and I saw pictures of people like giving it out to school children and enlarging it and putting it up in like libraries. And for me, I was like, that is the power of comics. Like it transcends, it's so commercial in its ability to, to get to people in a way that maybe just a regular story without imagery would have done. And we've seen that. I mean, you go to restrooms, you go to uh, anywhere. We see the illustrations of telling us how to properly wash our hands. Right. How to properly socially distance. And so the the, the imagery of illustrations is definitely something that kind of helped us through life. I want to ask you this. What do you say to somebody who's thinking about picking up a comic book or a graphic novel, but they think it's for kids? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a big, um, that's a big, a big issue, but I think that things are actually getting better for graphic novelists. Um, I, I, um, that's such an interesting question. I still don't know how to answer that. Um, I would say to that person that they should check out some of some other graphic novels like Persepolis and Mouse, and then come back to me and say whether they think it's for kids. Cause it can have some very adult themes. Um, and it's its own, it's, and it's, it's its own format. It's its own, you know, it, the storytelling style is so powerful and it's not just for children. That was cartoonist and NPR editor and illustrator Malika Garib. Her graphic memoir, It Won't Always Be Like This, came out last fall. 
You're listening to a rebroadcast of This Is Nashville from last May, all about the art of graphic storytelling, featuring some talented local comics. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm executive producer Andrea Tudhope. Whether it's showcasing the adventures of larger-than-life superheroes or immersing us in historical events, comics have a way of helping us to visualize new worlds and perspectives. You don't have to look any further than the Marvel Cinematic Universe to see that comic books continue to have a huge influence on pop culture. But when we do look beyond the MCU, we see that comics and graphic novels draw readers of all ages and backgrounds and tell all kinds of stories, some of them even true. Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode from last May all about comics, and our guests have worked in comics for years, and there's a good chance you've seen their work. Janet K. Lee is an illustrator and artist who has done work for Marvel and DC, in addition to her own art, and Anika Orak is an illustrator and cartoonist who is also the author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. I'll let our host, Kalila Colonna, take it from here. Tell me, how did you get started working in comics? Oh, it's a weird story. I was um, working as a buyer at Ingram Book Company in Nashville, and uh, started doing some artwork on the side. Um, a friend of mine who worked for Marvel wrote a book around three pieces of artwork I had done, and um, it went on to win an Eisner, and that sort of launched my career in comics. That is a nice way to get in. So <laughs> with all that, you know, fast forward a little bit, you ended up doing covers for Marvel and mm-hmm. DC. Have you, question for you, have you gotten to do any interiors of the comics as well? I have. Um, they're 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 non superhero comics. I um, I've done two Jane Austen adaptations for Marvel, um, and the work I did for DC was um, it was for Vertigo, um, and was the it was a anthology. Uh, the story didn't end up coming out, but they were great to work with at the time. So. But still not superheroes. I do everything but superheroes, apparently. Did I was wondering if the Jane Austen adaptation suddenly had them like firing photon lasers out of their eyes or anything, but no, nothing like that. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Just straight up Jane Austen. <laughs> Nika, how, did, how about you? How did you get your start? Uh at a kitchen table when I was three years old, I think, probably, <laughs> um, in regards to, you know, professionally getting paid. Um, you know, really, it, it just was keeping doing. I just was always drawing and always had some sort of peripherally creative job that wasn't um, really anything that uh, filled my soul or <laughs> hmm. maybe utilized the, the skills or anything that I had acquired. But um, it was really just through drawing that I sort of, I you know, trying those peripherally creative jobs all the time, 
realizing, okay, I definitely don't want to do this. Okay. I definitely don't want to do this. And then just kind of going until, till something clicked and that something was actually just really telling my own stories and digging for stories. And through that, um, discovering, uh, <laughs> kind of somewhat accidentally stories of, of women, of other women that had just sort of been buried, um, or fictionalized or, um, you know, that, and it, it was just kind of like, I've, I've always described it as like pulling a loose thread on a sweater and then it just kind of keeps coming and coming and, and you're like, oh my God, this is how, how did I not know about these stories? And, and wanting to share them and tell them and bring them to light, um, just using what I had, which is, um, storytelling and drawing and, and then seeing people respond to that and catching on and then um, that leading to other opportunities and the book and now um, future books and graphic novels that I'm really looking forward to. So um, I, it wasn't an Eisner Award, <laughs> which is so cool. <laughs> That's really cool, Janet. Um, but yeah. I want to get to this Hidden Histories a little bit later, but you kind of jokingly referred to it, but three years old at the kitchen table. I understand that this kind of thing runs in your family, right? <laughs> yes. I come from a long line of cartooning. Yes. Um, yeah, my grandfather was a cartoonist, um, and uh, that's how he started out, and he kind of did that on the side, and then he started writing on the side and eventually became um, a really well-known and beloved um, columnist, newspaper columnist in the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, my dad drew, you know, everyone in my family is always kind of like like Malika was saying, doodlers. Um, and my grandfather, I think, was the only one that really took it to like somewhat of a professional level. But uh, I think I really learned a lot just from sitting at the kitchen table watching him and and my dad draw. That was probably my earliest education. That's beautiful. Janet, you are working on a new book that you're both illustrating and writing. What is it yeah, about? It's my first time writing. Oh, it's um it's about me, but it's not about me. It's it's not a memoir, but everything is true. It really happened to be. Um I've got a um I've got a malformed hand. Uh it's the hand that I draw with. So it's about a little girl who's um, very self-conscious about her malformed hand, and over the course of the book, she realizes that um, she's not weird. Weird is normal. I love that. Now, both <laughs> both writing and illustrating a book sounds like a big undertaking. How are you handling that? Oh, I am lucky. I have a excellent editor who's uh, who's kind of ushering me through it. Um, it is a big jump, but I at least have had the advantage of looking at other people's scripts for years and years. So I know what it's supposed to look like, and I know how it's supposed to go. And now I just have to put the pieces together myself. Anika, do you relate to that? I mean, you wrote and illustrated a book about women's baseball. Absolutely. And in fact, when the editor first approached me at Chronicle Books and said that they were interested in, in doing it, um, my initial pitch was just to share stories of the women who had played uh, with an adjacent illustration. And she said, well, it's been a long time since they played. It's been 25 years since A League of Their Own, the movie came out, which is pretty much everybody's Hold sort on. of pop. Hold on. 25 years ago, the movie came it's out. It's been more I than that, that now. I saw that in the theater. It's been 30 years now. Wow. Okay. This was, this was five years ago. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I know. It's okay. I know. We'll Doesn't do. it just make your knees hurt thinking about it? A little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, she said, well, it's everybody's, you know, that's sort of everybody's touchstone, even though it's fictionalized. So uh, we want you to, we want the whole thing. We want the whole history, which really excited me. But my first question to her was, well, who, okay, great. Who's going to write it? <laughs> and she just looked at me like, duh. She said, well, you are. And uh, I, I just kind of played it off. Oh, yeah, sure. Naturally. OK. And then I went home like, how the, you know, but it, it, it 
like Janet was saying, I, I you know, I, my family is also, we have a lot of writers in our family. I had written um, just kind of personally and for, you know, school, I guess you could say. So um, just like she said, putting the pieces together. And it was um, my apartment definitely looked like either someone was solving a crime or about to commit one. There's like pieces of paper <laughs> pinned to every wall. I actually did use string to connect some some lines of thought, but uh, I just figured I got to do it however I can do it and, and thread together this narrative. And uh, it's exhilarating to do that for the first time. And then once you get the flow, you, you it kind of becomes addictive. You got the book then and, and you discovered where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. Exactly. Nice yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, in my next book. <laughs> so I want to know about process. Like aside from the length of a project, Janet, what's the biggest difference between creating a cartoon strip as compared to a comic book? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I mean, a, a strip is, is, is really distilled. It's, it's uh, just sort of a moment that you're, you're picking up. Um, and, and the difference between illustrating someone else's work and your own is that you're, you're sort of getting blank page syndrome a little bit. You know, you at least have a starting point um, for putting the jigsaw puzzle together when, uh, when you're looking at someone else's words. But um, I mean, the process for me, I, I, I think I'm still figuring it out. I, I started out thinking I was going to do things one way. Um, I tend to think of things really visually, so I thought I would be drawing little thumbnails as I wrote, but I kept to make so many changes that I had to revise all of that and go back to just writing um, um, full script, uh, so panel by panel and describing what I want done and hoping I remember. <laughs> and he could tell us about your process. Is blank page syndrome a real thing for you? Oh yeah, I, I I hope it's a real thing for everyone. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm doing it wrong. Um, but there's kind of a lot of opportunity with that. Um, you know, it is. I think one fun thing about writing and illustrating your own comic or book is that you get the opportunity to allow things to inform one another. So there's sometimes where like the words are flowing and the imagery was not, and vice versa. And when all of those things are coming from the same place and they're commingling in the same brain, <laughs> I guess, so to speak, it gives you the opportunity to really um, tweak things on one end and tweak things on the other end. Kind of like Malika was talking about earlier, where you can where you can convey a whole lot of message in one space. Um, you can think, what do I want like the one takeaway to be? And that can sort of inform whatever direction you go visually or written and um so, yeah, it, it's definitely a real thing, and it's frustrating at times, but uh, I've just found one foot in front of the other. Um, you know, you eventually kind of come back. Like, it'll always come to me in that half-wake, half-asleep spot where I'm focusing on one other page and trying to figure something out, and all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, I got it. I got what I'm going to do, like, 100 pages back. And, um, you know, that's the phone call you can make to yourself in the middle of the night that you can't make to your <laughs> editor or your illustrators. So. Very true. Now, do you, either of you ever have emotional reactions when creating your work? Anika? Oh, all the time. All the time. I was actually telling someone this recently that um, it's a little embarrassing to share this, but sometimes, um, you know, I, I don't know how many other creatives feel like this, but it's been written about that sometimes you feel almost like you're just sort of this, like, just like a blob, like a physical conduit for some other like ideas that are floating in the air. And I think that's true to some degree. You are sort of the filter of your experience. But um, there's times when I'm, when I'm putting something down and either the expression or the emotion or whatever is happening through the characters, they feel like they kind of have these little lives of their own and they just came through my pencil, but I didn't actually create them. So I'll, 
I'll look and I've, I've definitely laughed out loud or I've gone, oh, or I get a little tear mm. or I get a little misty or I've, I've actually gotten choked up sometimes at something I think is sweet. And then I catch myself and I'm like, this is so embarrassing. I, you know, it's not like I think I'm the greatest, you know, I'm the greatest at what I do, but it does feel like you're, you're just sort of giving life to something that already existed sometimes. That's wonderful. Janet. Yeah, it's, she's completely correct. Annika is 100% correct. It's, uh, it's one of those situations. And, and I think there's a, there's an addendum when you're, when you're just, even when you're illustrating someone else's work, as opposed to, um, to just doing your own, um, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle are finding out ways that you can both visually and with words, um, really sort of fully convey the emotion that you're wanting to get out there. Um, and, and part of the puzzle of writing the comic, at least for me, has been to uh, figure out the pacing so that you're um, using page turns, using uh, the, the way the pictures flow across the page to help draw people to the moment you want them to be at when they, they have the same realization as the characters or they, they get to the same place as the characters. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking with local artists and illustrators, Janet K. Lee and Anika Orock, about their work and what inspires them. We have a tweet from Emily Kimmelum, who says, My favorite graphic novel is Tide Song and Dean Doggos by Scout Underhill, coming soon. Hashtag not just for kids. Check it out, y'all. Scout is joining us later on in the show. But I wanted to pick up on a piece of that, the hashtag. We talked about this before the break. Who are comic books and graphic novels for? Janet. Comic books are, I like to say that comics are a medium, not a genre. Um, actually, my I think my friend Amy Chu came up with this. She wrote a couple of the books I did. But um, that's because... It's just a way of telling the story. It's not a uh, it's not a genre in and of itself. So you have everything from one of my favorites, which was, believe it or not, the 9-11 Commission Report that was done in graphic novel form. Mm-hmm. Um, it made it so much more understandable than trying to read that dense prose. And you can find anything you want to in comics. Comics are for everybody. Anika, I understand that the history of women in cartooning has been kind of a driving force for you. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in cartooning, uh, in animation, uh, what came to be in baseball, uh, it was actually through doing that, that, you know, discovering some of these stories, um, uh, you know, I had heroes growing up and, uh, admittedly most of them were men because those were the heroes that were portrayed. You know, um, I grew up loving animation. So, uh, between Warner brothers and Disney, you know, the, the famed, creators at Disney are literally called the nine old men, Mm. Um, you know, and, and we're only recently are these stories being um, sort of excavated, written about. um, But what's exciting to me is that a lot of these stories, like Janet is saying, they're, they're very academic. A lot of them are very dry. I'm very grateful to the people who are doing this research, of course, but um, I think that's where we get to come in with, with comics and um, creating visual interpretations of these stories is accessibility and making it for everyone. And I do just feel uh, it, it's exciting. I find the, I find my own heroes in these stories. It's um, and I think they deserve they deserve that. You know, they deserve to have these stories brought out brought out to people. Um, and also, you know, what I'm finding is that a lot of these stories that have been buried for so long that I'm just finding uh, like 90% of these stories are white women. 
And it's like if 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 I'm only, if we're only hearing about these stories now, like you know, 20, 30, 50, 150 years later, um, what stories have we not yet found? And sadly, what stories may we never know? Mm. Um, so that is a driving force for me. You know, some folks don't recognize that if they head out to Free Comic Book Day, they'll see folks from all aspects of our society. Today, more and more people can find a comic that they can see themselves in and connect to that story. That kind of comes down to representation, which you were just talking about with Anika. You know, do you think it's important to be able to see yourselves in comics, Janet. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I can't tell you. I, I just spent the weekend at um, Portsmouth Comic Con in the UK, and I can't tell you how many kids I was talking to who came up and described seeing themselves for the first time in a particular comic. You know, uh, their their background, their particular experiences. It can be a really powerful moment for them. Adults, too, I'm sure. I was mostly hearing from kids, so um, mm -hmm. I know it's really effective for them. But, you know, if you see yourself, you see it, you can dream it, you know? Yeah, I hear that. Anika? Absolutely. Oh, I mean, and, you know, I think it's so beautiful that we can open these doors and pass these things on to younger generations and to kids. But I will say uh, it's like never, ever too late. I was in my 30s when I started discovering stories of women who had played professional baseball and then that, like I said, sort of that unraveling and, and finding really incredibly influential, um, necessary women in like Disney animation in the 30s and 40s, women in cartooning um, that, you know, made a huge difference in how uh, like Jackie Orms changed, you know, just with her comic strip and and cartoons uh, actually influenced the way that black women were portrayed in media in general, just through that, through what she did with that. So um, discovering, you know, I discovered a lot of these women in my 30s and and that empowered me and made me feel like I was seeing a part of myself through that. And actually, I think like I don't know how many years it's been, but there's a really great conversation on YouTube uh, between uh, oh, and I'm forgetting his name, gentleman who was on The Daily Show um, talking about Franklin, the introduction of Franklin to Peanuts cartoons. Mm -hmm. And there's a really great conversation with that that um, really touches on what you're saying. That's just really cool. Illustrator and cartoonists Anika O'Rock and Janet K. Lee, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of our episode from last May, all about the art of graphic storytelling. When we come back, we'll take a look at some DIY aspects of comics and illustration. Stay with us. This is Nashville. rebroadcast episode, we've spent most of the hours so far hearing about more traditional publishing in the world of comics and graphic novels. But DIY has always been big for comics. I'm talking zines and webcomics. Our guests are a few local artists who take that approach. 
Daniel Pujol is co-creator and editor of Salt Weekly Zine, a spoof alt-weekly, and Scout Underhill is creator of the webcomic Dian Doggos. Our host, Khalile Colonna, takes it from here. So, Scout, tell me about your webcomic, D and Doggos. That sounds like fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it started kind of as an accident, actually, in 2017. My dogs did something just that I thought was pretty silly. I decided this sounded like a, a tabletop role-playing game scenario, like a D&D thing. Uh, so I made a little comic about it, shared it with a couple friends, and uh, my friend Guy Copsonbutt, who was doing daily web comics suggested that I post it online, post it to Reddit, and it grew from there. And now we're coming into the fifth anniversary of my webcomic just because I decided to make a silly little story about my dogs. Now, do your dogs have strong personalities? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, the first comic that I did, uh, Magnus ended up being the dungeon master because he he's more of like the leader of the pack and kind of keeps the other ones in line a little bit. Okay. Uh, Pickles tends to be very playful, very loud. Tonka just wanted to have a ton of fun. And then there was Zoe, who is like the mother dog. So they all they all just really work together like a D&D party. That sounds awesome. Daniel, you have a postcard comic called Thaw. But hold on, let's rewind a little bit. What is a postcard comic? Well... It is a bit of a comic book that just so happens to be on a postcard. And uh, there's a little subgenre of DIY art. It's called mail art. And uh, me and the collaborator that I do it with, Frank Hand, during quarantine, we were uh, FaceTiming all the time uh, on another project. And then eventually the conversations that we were having just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated. And we just built up this whole creative world together. And then um, my printer is a woman named Erica Baldwin, and she helped me figure out how to create a USPS regulation postcard format. And then me and Frank just went to town on it. How much fun do you have making that? The maximum amount of fun uh, <laughs> that is allowed. Uh, in terms of USPS regulation. Yes, yes. You, we have to stay within the regulation when having fun. It's very important. You, we must. You also co-founded the zine Salt Weekly, which is a play on words. What's the concept there? Well, the concept is, is that Salt Weekly is a spoof alt-weekly that is only published bi-monthly. I like that. I like that a lot. Now, how did you guys come up with ideas for the content? Well, so in 2018, summertime, uh, me and John Sewell, who does a gallery here in Nashville called Pack and Plant Gallery, and then Alex Lockwood, who does a gallery called Elephant Gallery, we were up in the attic in Pack and Plant before it was all the way finished, and we were just having a free conversation about different kinds of writing and different kinds of artwork that there wasn't really a venue for in, in publication, and we just decided to create a magazine slash zine um, that is Salt Weekly, and it runs a bit of everything from poetry to polemic to comics to photography, and um, we just roll with it. It's a snowball, and we chase it down the hill. 
Now, do you all come up with the content yourselves or do you find collaborators? It is a total mixed bag. So usually the way that it works is because, you know, me and me and John have, uh, you know, there was a lot of quarantining going on, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically we riff through a text thread or in person. We come up with a series of motifs and each issue has a motif. We announce the motif and we call open submissions. So the open submissions are going to be riffs from all different kinds of people and all different kinds of mediums on that motif. And then we grab all those submissions, we cram them onto the page, and then we make the magazine's physical format reinforce the motif. Okay, how can I be a part of this? How, how, how can I find out what the motif is, just in case I want to riff ah, about something? Just, well, I'm asking for a friend. I'm very interested in the possibility of such riffage. Mm-hmm. You could go to uh, Instagram, which is at the Salt Weekly, or you could email us at thesaltweekly at gmail.com. And, um, you know, we're talking about DIY and all that kind of stuff, and we've done some panels and stuff. Um, really, anyone that's listening out there, we invite you with open arms and a positive attitude, with respect and kindness, peace and love, to submit to Salt Weekly. Sounds wonderful. Now, Scout, what makes a webcomic different from other comic mediums? There's a lot of different kinds of web comics out there right now. Uh, Webtoon is one of the most popular formats, uh, but I mine is a little bit more <laughs> old school. So I just post once a week uh, on Fridays. Um, a lot of web comic formats tend to be in a couple panels, maybe only like four panels that and, you know, like uh, uh, on a joke and they they're more episodic. Mine is a series. So it's been ongoing for five years now. Um, but still, you want to be able to have, at least for me, something that kind of ends each of the, the comics every week on a fun note, a high note, something silly. Um, and that that's a lot different than I think a lot of other formats that you might get in a book. Now, I can imagine that with the webcomic, you're connected to your audience in a real-time fashion. So what's it like to be that close to your audience? Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. I, I do not have the largest fan base, but I have the best fan base. They are fantastic. They support me on Patreon. Like, it's only because of them that I am able to keep doing this. I didn't know when I first started if it was going to be something that I'd get to make a living out of. But my fans have really come through for me. They they support me. We sometimes we hang out on Zooms like once or twice a year or have little holiday gatherings like I'm really connected with them. It's just it's become its own community of people who have made different connections, have even met up with each other because of my comic at Mm. conventions and stuff like that. That sounds really cool. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with artists Scout Underhill and Daniel Pujol about alternative ways to make comics. Now, we got a question in from Stuart C. O. Black on Twitter, and he asks, do your artists do their own typography, too? Words are artistic as well. Scout? I do for the webcomic. I... I also do like the hand lettering for any sound effects and things like that. 
Um, Dean Doggo's is coming out as a graphic novel in 2024, and I will be doing the hand lettering for the sound effects. However, my publishing team is hiring an in-house letterer to do the words and the speech bubbles for me. Daniel, what about you? Uh, on Thaw, Frank does all of the lettering, and uh, I do the layout for all the postcards. So we have this really cool kind of index of numbers and and letters and uh, punctuation and stuff like that. And then when, and he does all the mailing too. So like if you order the postcard, he does the, uh, the address and everything. So we have uh, well-illustrated, consistent lettering and it's beautiful. Now, Scout, you mentioned the book, The Indagos have, have a book forthcoming. Tell me more about it. How did it happen? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it happened through a Twitter pitch event, actually, because uh, I had made a pitch for Dean Doggos as a graphic novel. My editor uh, found my webcomic during the pandemic, so she became a huge and fast fan. Uh, she actually requested that I submit it even before I had an agent, and it it went from there like really fast, and I'm absolutely thrilled. So I'm in the middle of working on book one while simultaneously getting started on book two for a 2024 release and a 2025 release. Wow. Um, yes, it's it's pretty quick, but I'm extremely excited because the format for a graphic novel gives me a lot of room to play with different panel layouts and page turns that I don't get to do with my webcomic. Now, Daniel, you have a pretty deep knowledge of Nashville's zine history. How mm -hmm. long has the zine seen been active here in town? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, I can be pretty didactic about it because John Sewell, uh, Mary Mancini, and Alan Sullivan, uh, going all the way back to about 80s punk rock stuff here in Nashville, uh, have helped me check the veracity of a little short list. So it seems like about the earliest is a dateless one by Dave Willey called Dixine, but the one that starts off being trackable is called Nashville Intelligence Report by Andy Anderson, which ran from 1982 to 1985, followed up by Anthem by Keith Gordon in 1983, Peacock Parade in 1983, Blast by David Willey in 1984, Weasel Weekly by Lee Carr in 1985, Fireplace Whiskey Journal by Tom Wood, 1988. House of Pain by Donnie and April Kendall in 1990-1992. Tag by David Willey in 2002. We Close by Kevin Riley in 2014. And Salt Weekly by John Sewell, Daniel Pugel, and Alex Lockwood, 2018 to the present. I love some of the titles. Fireplace Whiskey Journal. I have to read that. Mm -hmm. I definitely have to read that one. Yeah, John is collecting uh, archives of a bunch of that stuff, which um, you go over to that Pack and Plant gallery. You can talk to him about that. He is doing an excellent job archiving all this stuff. Sounds like it's a, been a pretty tight community. And, and I understand, Scout, that there's a tight community of illustrators in Nashville. Yes, there is. Actually, that's how, uh, <laughs> that's how I've really started on this illustrator journey. Uh, there's a group of illustrators here for the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators. So I joined that in 2016 and we've had monthly meetings that have really helped me grow as, uh, as an illustrator to just 
have that support group of friends who know the industry can really help you uh, uplift you and share advice and everything. And through the pandemic, we've continued to meet uh, via Zoom every month. And it's been really fantastic. You know, I want to ask this question, like when you all create your work and particularly in today's environment of audience interaction and influence, do you try to adapt your work to what the audience wants and to where the audience is acting in effect as your editors? Daniel, how do you approach that? Uh, I do not believe in any way, shape or form that the audience is my editor. And I don't mean that in a uh, I'm going to do whatever I want kind of thing, mm -hmm. but because I'm going to be doing that anyway. But, uh, you know, you got to make stuff finished for people so they can understand it. Um, and I, I don't feel any pressure really with anything I make uh, to uh, do this kind of where's my burger sandwich artist Yelp style stuff with anything I ever do. Period. Scout, do you feel the same way? I mean, like you said, you've had a lot of supporters on mm -hmm. Patreon and people can stop supporting on Patreon if they decide mm -hmm. they don't like the work you're coming with. What's your approach? Uh, they're, they're not my editors. However, because I'm doing this weekly, sometimes I'll have a buffer of comics ready to go. But there are times where the audience has a better idea than what I planned. And I might just steal that idea a little bit. <laughs> That works. You can give them credit. It works. <laughs> I got one last question for you, Scott. Answer this for me, please. You know, what about the person who has an interesting idea, but they have no clue on how to get started? What's your advice to them? My advice for you is to just do it. Just get started. If you look at Dean Doggo's uh, with the art style that I have now versus comic number one, it has just evolved. If you're at all interested in creating anything, if you want to make comics, just start making comics. Don't think that you have to be prepared to do it. If you want to do it, you're already prepared. That is Scout Underhill, the creator of the webcomic Dean Doggos. They were joined by Daniel Pujol, co-creator of Salt Weekly. Thank you both for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. We're back live tomorrow with an episode all about Tennessee's new third grade retention law. Under these new rules, up to 60% of our state's third graders could be held back. To put it lightly, parents are not pleased. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Halila Colonna is our host. Michaela Elias is our technical director. And I'm your executive producer, Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Amir Blade. Special thanks to Rachel Iacovoni, John Sewell, and Mary Mancini. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.